Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are my friends Ian and Gareth Kalk. Welcome to the podcast, men. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. We're primarily going to hear from Ian in this podcast. As a background on Ian, he is 28. He lives in South Carolina. He is married. Um, his wife is Caitlin. We're also going to hear from Gareth, who is 25. His wife is Nicole. They live in Orem, and they're moving to L.A. And we're going to talk with Ian about the work he did in Atlanta to start an LDS LGBTQ support group called RISE. And he's one of the three co-founders of RISE that meets about every other month. I've had the chance to be there and speak with that group as they're talking about LGBTQ and we're also then going to have Ian share about his faith crisis and a little bit about how the church, you know, has become complicated for him. And he's going to share his journeys. He's trying to do the best he can to manage complicated issues in the church. This is a podcast that, you know, really talks about complicated stuff, LD, LGBTQ and faith crisis. And and so I want to, you know, if this is a podcast you want to skip for any reason because you don't feel you want to hear someone's faith crisis or where someone thinks that perhaps their path is not in the church, this might be a podcast to skip. But if you want to listen to a couple men who serve missions are doing the best they can and talking about their faith crisis and what local leaders are doing in a helpful way and creating space and and if you want to understand how to help someone in a faith crisis or if you're in a faith crisis and need an example of someone who's doing the very best they can to figure this out and to potentially stay, and also if you're looking for people that are trying in a real thoughtful way to help our LDS, LGBTQ brothers, this is a podcast for you. I think you know that this podcast, I'm trying to be supportive of the church, supportive of LGBTQ, and also creating space where we're talking about really complicated subjects in the very best way we can. So that's a big disclaimer. Are you men okay with that disclaimer? <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. The only thing I would fix is that I actually live in Atlanta and I was raised in South Carolina. Yes. You were both raised in South Carolina. Everything else was absolutely perfect. <laughs> and tell us your careers. Let's start with you, Ian. Tell us what you do professionally and then have you both tell us about the band you're both co-founded. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a chiropractor. I work in a, uh, a sports rehab clinic in, uh, in Atlanta. So that's what I do. Full, that's, that's my day job. That's a day job. And how long ago did you graduate and how old are you? So I'm 28. I graduated from chiropractic school in uh, September of last year. So 20, September, 2018. That's great. Our yeah. brother-in-law is a chiropractor in Houston that? and in kind of that same sports world. And yeah. I've seen a lot of good that he does, including on my own body. Yeah. yeah, I love it. I love it. I love sports and orthopedic stuff. And then tell us about the group. Let's have Gareth. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the group that you're both in, the name of the group and the kind of music you do and why you started a group together? Yeah. So uh, Ian and I, we're, we're brothers. And so we've been playing music together for a long time um we we've kind of had different uh incarnations of of us together in different groups um the the group we're currently in is called the outview um it's a it's a pop for, for lack of a better word it's a, it's a pop group and uh we we don't have any material out currently we're working right now with uh some people in la to uh release an ep it'll be about five songs um and it, it, it's it's a fun project to do. It's a little difficult because he lives in Atlanta and I live out here. And so a lot of the work we do is 
through FaceTime and Google Drive, <laughs> but, cool. uh, but, but it's a really great outlet for us. It's good. And then do you do perform individually? Cause I know I see you in Atlanta performing at times and on your own. Yeah. I, I perform the... a bit in Atlanta just solo. Um, cause we don't get to spend time together very much. I guess I don't know if you, do you perform very much? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't perform. I, I'm, so I actually just graduated from Utah Valley university earlier this month with a degree in digital audio. And so, uh, our, our process is Ian does a lot of the kind of the skeleton writing of the songs. Uh, he'll send the ideas over to me and then I'll produce them and record them and mix them into kind of like the final product. Uh, and that, and that is a great workflow for us. So I don't, I don't perform as much. Uh, he, he's much better at that, but hopefully someday once we get music going off the ground, we can uh, actually go on tour or something. It's <laughs> great. And I've met both of your wives. Ian's wife is Caitlin. I don't know if I mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast and Gareth's wife is Nicole, and I've had the chance to meet both of these wonderful women, and you have great supportive wives, so it makes Thank me happy you. to see you. They're amazing. So let's talk about Rise. You're a member of the church in Atlanta, um, and then suddenly you're feel impressed with some other people to start a, a group in Atlanta. Yeah, well, it actually sort of started with you, not, not to... Uh, I feel like I'm sucking up to the owner of the podcast. <laughs> but um, so Gareth uh, sent me a talk that you had given, I think, at the Joseph Smith Memorial Building. Yeah. Um, and it, it talked about your experience becoming a YSA bishop and, and feeling a desire to minister to the LGBTQ people in your ward. Um, and you talked about how um, you you felt like there was there was a test to measure your cholesterol, but there wasn't a test to measure your homophobia. And I, and I related with that a lot. And you felt like there was a, that everything you had really been taught about gay people was taught to you by straight people. And I really related to that. And I'd had some companions on my mission who uh, were gay. Um, and you served in Alaska. I did. Yeah, I served in Alaska and I had an incredible mission. Um, and so after I read your talk, which was January of 2018, I got done. I put it down and I just felt like my insides were on fire. I felt like I have to do something like this guy I had no idea who you were, but I thought I, whatever this guy's doing, I need to be doing that. And, uh, and I, I thought, you know, we've probably got a, an encircle or a, an affirmation or a North star in Atlanta and I'll find them and I'll go help. And, um, in hindsight, it's really naive. Uh, there wasn't anything in Atlanta. There's a, a huge pride community in Atlanta, but not specifically for uh, a Latter-day Saint demographic. And so, um, so when I found out there wasn't one, I thought, well, I'll just wait um, for someone to build one and then I'll go volunteer at it because I knew people could volunteer at like in circle and things like that. And almost as soon as I had that thought, I felt like someone grabbed me by the collar and I, I had this feeling in my head that said, Ian, you cannot wait for someone to build this because someone might be waiting on you. And and that really got to me because I've never made something. I'm, I'm a really great follower, but I'm not a natural leader. Um, and so... <clears throat> I talked to my wife about setting something up and she was really supportive. And, um, we both reached out to our friend, Jen Mack. So Jen Mack was someone I knew from the YSA ward, um, very involved in the church, very involved in musical theater. And she just has a lot of gay friends. Um, and I knew that, and I knew that, um, if there's anyone who could help us, it would be her. So I texted her and I said, Hey, I'm thinking about doing a group. Would you be interested in helping? And she said, she said, I can't believe this. I actually have had this idea for about a year, um, like a, an LGBT group, maybe for youth or maybe an online forum. Um, 
and I just have, haven't really done anything with it yet, but it's called Rise. And I was like, perfect, <laughs> let's do it. Um, and so, so that was sort of like the early beginnings. And she brought her friend, Andrew, um, who is an, uh, an active gay uh, member of the church and a good friend of both of ours now. Um, and so together we sort of became like the co-founders, I guess is what we call ourselves. And, uh, and we started Rise. And we started meeting once a month. Um, did you talk to your local church leaders? Um, did you do this, try to do it within the circle of the church or just do it on your own? I think the initial idea we had was to do it within the church. I, I didn't fully understand at the time, uh, policies and, and like rules as how, how that works, sponsorships and that type of stuff. And, um, I knew, I realized very quickly <clears throat> that it wasn't going to be something that could be officially church sponsored. Um, um, but so what we, we talked to, we met with our stake president, we met with our bishops and we basically said to them, like, um, we're going to do this and we want to make sure that you are at least in the loop on everything. That way I used to joke if something really goes astray or like haywire, right? We have a rogue meeting. Uh, they hear about it from us first and not from some, you know, some angry member or something like that. Um, and it, and they were, have been just incredibly supportive, um, and, and at this time I was doing like, I was doing like loads of research. Um, cause I, I was very insecure about the idea of being a straight white male, sort of like helping spearhead this group for uh, a group of people that I don't identify with. Um, and I only recently, I had all this passion, but I hadn't, didn't have much education about it. So I was doing tons of research. <clears throat> um, we were researching other groups like us, uh, Steve Young's group, um, the hearth and mm -hmm. uh, I've got all Arizona and there's North star and affirmation and circle. And, um, I was doing all these things and, uh, I still felt like I lacked a little bit of credibility. <laughs> like why would anyone listen to what I have to say, especially when I talked to my priesthood leaders. So I decided to kind of, you had mentioned people that you interviewed as a Bishop and I thought, well, I'm not a Bishop. I don't really have a platform for that, but I'll just start doing my own interviews. So I started, I remember that. That's right. Yeah. So I started interviewing people and I spent most of 2018 just interviewing um, people with a Latter-day Saint background who identified as LGBTQ. When you say interview, this wasn't a podcast you're recording and sharing. This was just your personal journey to learn. Yeah, it was, it was private and it was, uh, it was under the assumption that it would be confidential and, and most of them didn't care. Um, but um, I found that if I, if I, early on in the interview told them that it was going to be confidential and maybe even asked them some provocative questions. They were more prone to be very open with me. Um, and I learned very quickly how to, how to use my words to create like a safe space. And the, the interviews, uh, changed my life. Honestly. Um, there's, I, I remember hearing in the MTC, um, there, there, there isn't anyone you can't love once you've heard their story. It's a pretty popular phrase. And that was true for me. It was the most heart changing experience I've probably ever had was doing those interviews. Wow. Um, I, I, I just heard so many stories that were heart wrenching and inspiring and wonderful and terrible and, um, things that I didn't even really know were going on. I remember interviewing someone who came out to their family with a failed suicide attempt. And I had no idea that was even an issue, which is so naive now to think. Um, but that was just kind of where my headspace was. I just didn't know. I didn't have any exposure. Um, 
interviewed people who were active and uh, single and celibate and people who were married and had left and all all the in-between people who had just come out and people who weren't out yet but were still talking to me about it. And um, It was, yeah, I could talk about those interviews for days. It was pretty amazing for me. What a wonderful idea, Ian. What was your idea? <laughs> but <laughs> I just borrowed it from you. <laughs> what a great, you know, idea. It, it really, um, I mentioned this the other day to a friend, Brene Brown has this, she'll, she'll say that uh, it's difficult to hate up close, right? And we should move in. Um, and I, I think that's what I was trying to do, not realizing, not knowing if I was doing it the right way, but um, it was it was amazing. I, I, I interviewed um, John Bonner, who you actually interviewed. So John he was actually the first LGBTQ person on the podcast episode four. I didn't know that, and I didn't know that I would do so many. That's so John was the trailblazer. How about that? Yeah, he's quite a trailblazer. I, uh, I so I, I saw his article come out. Um, LDS Living, I think, posted the article. It's, it's, I think it was called uh, "You Are Still My People" or something like that. A beautiful artwork, beautiful article. And then I saw it going around social media, and then I saw you interview him. And then uh, he posted the interview in my mission group because I guess we both served in Alaska. That's right. And I thought, oh, okay, well maybe I can reach out. Maybe I can reach out to this guy and 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 interview him. And um, so, uh, so I got in contact with him. He was so kind. He agreed to let me talk with him. Um, and I had done loads of research on him because I knew he had written for some platforms. I think uh, uh, like Huffington Post and, and things like that. So I'd read everything he had written and listened to all his YouTube videos. And so uh, he's he got on the phone and I said, John, how long do I have you for? And he said, 20 minutes. And I thought, oh, heck, <laughs> that's not enough time. Normally these interviews I would do would be two or three hours. Uh, and I thought, okay, what can I ask him in 20 minutes? Um, and so I said, John, I I don't really know what to ask you. I've read so much about you. Is there anything that you wish I would ask you anything that you want to talk about, but are too polite and waiting for me to ask the question. What a great question. And, and he said, he said, that's a great question. Um, I have no idea. And I thought, ah, oh, I thought I hit the jackpot. Then it ended up being a strikeout. And then he said, but here are two questions that you should ask everybody. And he said, number one, um, what is it like to be you? What is it like to be you? And number two, how is your heart? He said, you should ask that to everyone you talk to. And that was um, a huge turning point for me. I started asking that in every interview I did. And I could almost have stopped the interviews after those questions and understood what I needed to understand about a person. Um, Repeat those two questions. Yeah, so the two questions are, what is it like to be you and how is your heart? And I can't think of any two questions that could give you a quick recap of a person's experiences and where they are in the present right now. Um, how, how, how much better could we understand someone if we just said, what is it like to be you? Tell me, you tell me, and then I'll just accept your truth for what it is. Um, and that was, that was a, a, a pr- an invaluable educational moment for me. Thanks to, I hope John doesn't mind me sharing that story. I bet John would love <laughs> hearing that. So, uh, yeah. So I, I, I could talk about these interviews all day. I'm trying to, I've got a few notes here. Um, just some things that I remember talking to people about, but it was just really inspiring. I remember talking to a, uh, one guy and, and he said to me, 
uh, he sort of sighed and he said, you know, Ian, he was gay. <clears throat> and he said, you know, Ian, I really am a good person. As if, as if he needed to convince me that he was. And I, and I thought, how telling is that? That he, that he thinks that because he's gay, somehow he, that disqualifies him and that he needed to persuade me, right? And that happened over and over again. Uh, people would say similar things like that to me. Um, I, I just, I guess I think about um, in, in John, for example, in John chapter one, there's this part where it says, you know, uh, in the beginning was the word and the word uh, was God and the word uh, dwelt among us, right? And the Greek for dwelt is actually pitched his tent and right? he pitched his tent among us. And it's a reference to the tabernacle in the Old Testament and whatnot, but um, but it, it really gives new meaning to people talk about big tent Mormonism, right? Um, the, I think what we can learn from Jesus is that he was always pitching his tent among people and like getting up close and, and hearing and seeking out the individual. Um, and I just think it's a beautiful lesson. I wish I could sort of like unplug all of my interviews and plug them into everybody's head um, because cool. I think their hearts would change instantly. Um, that's what it did for me, at least. I should also say that I interviewed Ben Shalati, who is a good friend of mine now, and, and he said, he said, I want you to remember one thing. You are not a hero. <laughs> ben, ben always keeps me in my place. He's like, I know you're doing these interviews, and I know it's exciting, and I know you've done Rise, but I want you to remember that you're not a hero. <laughs> what was Ben trying to say there? He was trying to keep me humble. I think, uh, I think there's a, a tendency sometimes to... <clears throat> when you're when you're part of a good cause to maybe get a savior complex um and and he was trying to make sure that that I remember that I was not actually the LGBTQ person I was I was helping but um but you you have mentioned before that that sometimes in the story of the good samaritan uh we think that we are the ones being we're the rescuers when really we're the ones being rescued and that was my exact experience with these interviews I I felt rescued um, I felt like my heart was just being perpetually melted and recrafted. What What is it about your heart that allows you to <clears throat> um, be willing to hear stuff, just wanting to learn? You have an inquisitive side of you or a Christ-like attribute. Where do you trace that to or how do you see, how does that come about? I, I don't know. I, I certainly don't think um, I'm unique in any way or, or somehow more compassion. I, I really don't know. It was an incremental process for me. Um, there have been plenty of times over the past 28 years where I did not listen and I did not seek out and I did not take time to hear or understand. I sort of um, <clears throat> just went ahead and put my label on whatever a person was and went on my way instead of giving them a chance. I should mention <clears throat> there were a lot of lessons from my mission um, that have been extremely helpful in this process that I didn't know were going to be so helpful. Um, I remember every, probably every missionary has had this experience where you are talking to someone about the church and they say, well, let me check with my, my minister first, you know, or let me, let me ask my preacher or, or they'll say, I heard, you know, from so-and-so that you guys believe X, Y, and Z. And every missionary knows the frustration of, I wish you would just ask me, you know, I'm, I'm the member here, like come to the source, right? That's, I was a missionary during like the Mormon moment 
And so we had, you know, meet the Mormons come out and, and all these I'm a Mormon videos. And the idea was going to the source. If you want to learn about it, go to the source. Um, and, and sometimes maybe we're good at applying that to our church, but maybe we're not a good at applying that to people in our church. Um, and so, so I was just trying to go to the source. If, if I want to learn about gay people, I should probably ask a gay person <laughs> what, what his life or her life has been like. Same with, with anybody in the LGBT community or any community for that matter. Uh, go to the source. Members are good at that. We as members are really good at getting people to come to the source. And, and I think sometimes maybe we could expand that concept. I remember being on a <clears throat> trip with my wife and S. Michael Wilcox, a church instructor and who's our tour guide, was sort of talking about if you want to know the best about a Jew, go talk to a committed Jew. <laughs> right. And if so if you want to know the best about Judaism, go talk to someone who loves Judaism. And that's their faith. And you're sort of making the point about our own faith. If you want to learn about the LDS church, don't talk to someone who's, you know, in another faith or have left the faith. Talk to someone who loves that faith. Sure. And so I think there's a principle there that you're implementing is if you want to know about LGBTQ people, you got to go talk. Yeah. And mm. I think that's a Christ-like attribute to be willing to listen. And sometimes I think you're, you're, it's interesting the preparation you did for those interviews because I think there's a side of you that recognized you don't want to ask triggering questions or you didn't maybe know all the vocabulary. And I think that's what sometimes keeps us back is we don't want to offend and we don't – I didn't know the vocabulary and I didn't know yeah. what I should be saying and shouldn't. I think that's okay. I think you can still step in the space and maybe it helps to read blogs and listen to podcasts as a preparatory phase to actually talking to LGBTQ people. But – yeah, I, I have yet to talk to an LGBTQ person who was upset that I misspoke the vocabulary when they could tell that Your heart. I just wanted to learn, right? And they were happy to correct me, and they did it very gently, a lot. <laughs> um, it's funny you should mention the vocabulary. That's another thing I learned from my mission. I remember on my mission, you know, and, and even now there's sort of a reemphasis on it. People might call us a Mormon and we sort of gently encourage them to maybe call us a Latter-day Saint or a member of the church because it's important to us for members of the church to get to choose how they are identified by, right? That matters to us. Um, and I think if anybody should understand that, it's us. And, and what I learned applying that same principle to these interviews is I learned the value of letting someone tell me how they would like to be identified. And it cost me nothing to identify them. And that's something that you said to me before. Um, we, as members of the church, we should be pros at that. <laughs> we, we get that, right? We know how valuable it is to be able to um, determine what our identifier is going to be. And um, as LGBTQ people, I would always, you know, I, I didn't always, but I learned to ask, how do you like to be identified? And they would say, well, I identify as gay or I identify as queer or I, I'm questioning or sometimes they would say, you know, I don't know, actually. I'm still working that out. Um, uh, but it's a very simple, small olive branch to call someone in the way they like to be called. That's good. It's yeah. really thoughtful. So talk about RISE. When was your first meeting and where are they held? And do you have, like, um, goals of what you're trying to accomplish at RISE? Yeah. Uh, our first meeting was in, I, th I believe it was April of 2018. Um, and we just meet in people's houses. Um, we meet in um, 
members' houses. Uh, we've met in bishops' houses. Um, uh, Jen, I think it was Jen, maybe Andrew, came up with the idea that we would use name tags with only first names and no titles. So when our bishop comes, he's just Dave. He's not Bishop Brian or, or he's Steve. He's not, you know, the bishop. Um, because we wanted to make it a safe space. And the 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 demographics of our group are predominantly allies um just because we're new and we're still trying to get the word out and 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 some people you know it's a it can be a very vulnerable space for an lgbtq person especially if they've experienced pain or trauma in a church setting um and so we so we made we made some rules and we made some goals ben ben shilati told me that i needed to make some sort of document to anchor us. And he was exactly right. Uh, we did that and it's been our saving grace a lot. Um, but our first goal is to create a safe space in a listening room for people with a Latter-day Saint background who identify as LGBTQ. Um, our second, I don't have them in front of me, but our second or third goal is to um, give allies a chance um, to just come have some exposure. Exposure is key. I think um, that's another thing that that we could really learn from like Jesus is he was never afraid of exposure. He would go be close to people that other people didn't want to be around or were uncomfortable being around or were concerned being around, but he got exposed to everybody and, um, and exposure changes people's hearts and minds. And so we want to create a safe space that allies could come and hear stories and ask questions that maybe they weren't otherwise comfortable doing. Um, and then LGBTQ people could, uh, come and meet others like them and know that they're not alone. There's a whole world of people just like them. Um, and there's no need for us to suffer alone. Are there LGBTQ people coming and do you have LGBTQ people present and how is that all working? Yeah, we have LGBTQ people who come um, and who have presented. Um, and we've had, <clears throat> we come sort of all across the proverbial spectrum as far as how they identify and, and what their situations are. We, we did a panel one time where we had uh, four people and one was active, all LGBTQ. One was active with a temple recommend. Uh, one was less active. One had just removed his membership. And one was raised in a very, very conservative, non-Mormon family. Um, and we just let people ask them questions. Um, and that was in our bishop's house we did that. And I was really nervous about that meeting because <laughs> I thought there was a lot of opportunity for a lot of discomfort, including in myself. Um, and it was, um, my bishop cites that meeting still. I've heard him talk about that meeting a lot. It had a profound effect on him and, and myself as well. How so? How so? <clears throat> I think for my, what I've heard my bishop say is um, almost all of them mentioned um, in their youth experiencing some sort of anxiety, depression, loneliness, uh, feeling like they were dirty, feeling like, like they weren't worthy of love. Um, and my I think it opened, to what I've heard my bishop say, I think it opened his eyes to the reality of that experience and how common that is. Uh, I think statistically, what is it, like 1 in 20 active members of the church are LGBTQ. Um, my ward has well over 20 youth, and my, my bishop knows that, and he knows that more than likely um, there are LGBTQ, LGBTQ youth in our ward, and he does not want them to feel dirty or unworthy of love or have anxiety and depression because of who they are. What could he do for <clears throat> closet youth to create a culture they don't, a feeling they don't feel that way? Should, don't, yeah. 
uh, I think one thing he could do and is doing um, is just talking about it. <clears throat> I, sometimes um, in my experience growing up, I remember hearing um, topics involving uh, you know, LGBTQ issues spoken in sort of like hushed tones, um, sort of like whispered, you know, so-and-so, I think he's gay, that type of thing. And, and when you do that, it immediately sends the message that maybe this is a bad thing. Maybe this is a dirty topic. Um, and I, I, I makes me so, uh, makes me cringe to think of the 14 year old boy feet away from that conversation who's just realizing that he's gay and now he hears these adults talking about it that way like what message does that send to him whereas my bishop um he talks about it he's i've heard him talk about it over our pulpit many times i've heard him even express over our pulpit that he wants to make sure that if there are gay youth in our ward that they know that they are loved and welcome in our ward here and that they can talk to him anytime uh, he's, he's been amazing about it he and his wife are just incredible people that's cool yeah yeah more thoughts about Rise, Ian? Um, uh, it's just been a learning experience for everybody. We So this year we decided to meet uh, once every other month um, uh, just because we can market the meetings better. Um, we, we're sort of a smaller group. Um, we're probably about the same size as, as the Hearth in San Francisco. We ha generally have 20 to 40 people come. Um, the meetings are about an hour and we'll end with a musical number. Um, and we will, normally people will just linger. I remember when you came, uh, people would just linger for an hour or two and just talk. And that sort of became an accidental trademark of our meetings. We didn't plan that, but it just started happening. And that's just kind of everyone knows that once the meeting's over, we'll stay and we'll talk. And we, if we have a speaker, everyone will one by one bombard the speaker. I think that was your experience. <laughs> and uh, just ask their questions and pick their brain. And um, it it's it's nice to have a place where uh, members can come and and get to ask questions that they wanted to ask but weren't sure if it was okay or weren't sure how to um, or maybe have those questions just answered without them having to ask and uh, it's um, I think the year of 2018 for me was a year about learning how to listen and validate there are there are hardly two better skills that we could learn but how to listen and validate tell someone that their experience is real tell them that their feelings are valid um, and then listen to what they have to say and just accept their truth for what it is um, and um, and there are some some wounds that can only really be healed and reached by just genuine listening and validating so that's what I learned at least <laughs> I think Jen, I think Jen and Andrew from our co-founders already knew how to do that <laughs> but they were patient as I kind of like caught up eventually how is and Andrew's your uh, member of your your three co-founders that's gay I, I, mm -hmm. if Andrew were here we'd ask Andrew so I'm recognizing him asking you to speak for Andrew how's <laughs> the experience for him he he has loved it um, he tells me all the time after the meeting how much he loves rise uh, he's mentioned how helpful it would have been for him um, if he were, when he were younger, um, Andrew also, so when I was doing research for rise, I interviewed, uh, John Gustavo Rathel, who, um, is with affirmation. Is he, is he still the president? Uh, executive director, executive director. Yeah. I interviewed him and he said, um, he said, I know you're excited. Um, but if you're going to start a group like this, you need to have at least one person in the leadership who is LGBTQ. And I thought that's fair. <laughs> we should probably do that. Um, and so Andrew has been tremendous in keeping us 
um, and like orienting us like, hey, this was a great meeting, but not really helpful for the LGBTQ people who there who were there uh, or he'll say, you know, this was a great meeting for the allies. But remember that we're we're for LGBTQ people first. And and he always is sort of redirecting us. Um, and and he has been so helpful um, in doing that. He's just so sweet. He's so kind. I was talking to him one day on the phone. And I had him on speaker and I hung up and my wife said, what warden in the church would not be better off with an Andrew in it? And and that's been my experience with with every single person I've I've interviewed and talked to. I can't think of a congregation that would not be uh, better off with them in it, or even a person who would not be better off with uh, someone like Andrew in their life. And I've had the chance to meet Andrew and Jen, and they are really good. Andrews, and I love your the understanding about the role of an ally mm-hmm. and the importance of having LGBTQ and John's counsel. And I've had to learn some of that too, and maybe perhaps still make mistakes when I go speak. Sometimes I recognize that, you know, it would be better if I weren't speaking and LGBTQ people, because yeah. that's what changed my heart. And, um, and the podcast format is good because I, LGBT people can speak, but I agree that our job is to sort of step out of the way and let LGBTQ people shine. And we can go back to our straight privilege and <laughs> and our lives are easier, but yeah. I think we that's and I think that's a doctrine that is consistent with what Christ taught. Yeah. I, I think you and, and Jen Mack have been remarkably helpful for me in understanding uh sort of the role of a platform and privilege. Jen Jen uh was in the Relief Society presidency. Um and she, she was able to use her platform a lot um for to talk about things like rise. Um, for to bring up the conversation, but she's so good at knowing how to like um, make people feel comfortable and open up the platform and then draw their attention to uh, someone who actually is gay or or you know trans or or identifies as LGBTQ in some way. And then you guys are masters at that. So, um, well, I enjoyed my time there. I enjoyed the home we were in. Um, I remember you picking up and it was pouring rain and I love summer rainstorms. That's right. It was. You and your good wife were there. And I remember Joe, um, who I believe is in a same sex marriage and just, um, enjoyed meeting Joe. Mm -hmm. And I was glad there were LGBTQ people there, like you said, and I love your panel where there were all sorts of LGBTQ stories that were valid. And you're right. The Ben Shalottis that are in the church are... Those stories are important, but I think it's important to hear every story. Mm-hmm. And and it maybe it was easier for me to hear Ben Shalati's story first as someone who's in, and, and then it became possible for me and important to me to hear everybody's story and sort of had the maturity to do that, just like you and others are doing. But you have to listen. I also was remembering the night I was there, there was a, the missionaries came and brought an investigator. That's right. And she, this is one of her, I think, stumbling blocks or she's younger, she's professional. And she, I think, was very interested in the church, but her worldview of LGBTQ is pretty inclusive. Mm -hmm. And so I think the missionaries were aware of her eyes and thought maybe this would help. And I traded some emails with this investigator after Rise for a little bit. And we just kind of talked about women's issues were something she's very sensitive about. Mm -hmm. And LGBTQ, which are sensitive issues for those in the church. Mm-hmm. 
I, I've lost track of her. I assume she didn't join the church or she may have told me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't, she's in a different war there. I have no idea. So, but I just thought that was pretty cool that the missionaries brought an investigator to rise just to help her understand the churches trying to do the best they can and rises informal to, mm -hmm. um, for LGBTQ inclusiveness. And I've always felt that having an LGBTQ message as part of our restored gospel and LGBTQ in the church is key to having the church go forward in a significant way, especially in kind of first world countries where this is a very topical issue. Yeah, I think especially uh, with millennials, I think this these are becoming huge issues um, because they're not, for us, they're, they're becoming uh, not new issues. They're things that we have known. Gay, we had gay friends in school and it's not something... Uh, it's just more prevalent in our in our worldview. We we were not around in the time where it was um, as taboo as it used to be. So yeah. I think there is some generational aspect to it as well. I, I hate to speak for all generations, <laughs> uh, yeah. but I do think my experience has been millennials are sort of hungry to talk about this. Yeah, and I I think that's great. Generese has done some really good research on that as yes. well. Yes, and I just think that's an improvement in our society. I look at where I was at your age. You were 25 and 28, and I could never have posted a picture on social media um, <laughs> being with an LGBTQ person. Like, sure. And I just, I I couldn't have done that. I separated myself. Everybody, that was just, I thought that was my job as a faithful Latter-day Saint or my job in society, and I just separated myself from mm -hmm. Um, the few gay men from my own high school or that I knew, and I just, I didn't have a framework to do what you're both doing, and many millennials are doing. There's my sons at BYU have, have had gay roommates at times, and and wow. it has not been a factor at all. They're not weirded out about that. It's just, they're mature enough just to see them for who they are and not, and they're sort of confident enough in their own sexuality that they don't see the need to take on people of different sexual orientations. Um, I've, I've seen that a little bit at times that I just, it makes me think that we're just maturing as a society and as a church. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think seeing a framework or I, I, you know, I was not far away from what you're describing only a couple of years ago. Uh, so I, there, there's an interesting dichotomy that you experience in growing up as a Latter-day Saint because the church as a concept is built on this idea of a precedent, right? Like Christ comes and he establishes a church and then the church in the latter days is based on the precedent, right? It's supposed to be the same. When we come across an issue that we're not sure what to do, we go to the scriptures or we, we look at what the precedent was. What did Christ do? Um, and, and that's been crucial. But at the same time, we come from this rich heritage of pioneers and trailblazers, people who did things for which there was no precedent. People who were doing things that hadn't been done before, beliefs that hadn't really been uh, exposed to before on a, on a wide scale. And so as members of the church, sometimes it can be, uh, we find ourselves, is it okay to be a trailblazer or should I stick with the precedent? And and people like you, and this podcast was helpful for people like me um, because I was someone who, if you don't know what to do, just don't change, <laughs> right? Just stick with the safe precedent do what's always been done, and you'll be fine. Um, but every good thing that's ever happened, there was a first time that it was done. Um, at some point, that good thing was the pioneer way, was the trailblazing way. And I remember when we started Rise, you told me that there was no handbook or, or map for how to do this. Um, and so 
I think the more we can talk about it um, and help people feel okay with um, uh, maybe doing something they've never done before, talking to someone they've never talked to before, discussing using words or asking questions they've never asked before, um, kind of tapping in a little bit to that rich pioneer heritage that we have. Um, that's when when real progress and, and positive change starts to happen. And, and we're the right people for it. Who better than than members of the church <laughs> to be pioneers? It's cool. Yeah. I love that. I love the concept of a precedent. Gareth, what did you think when your brother Ian stepped in the space as an LGBTQ ally? I thought it was super cool. I remember, um, I think me and my wife were at in like the movies or something, and I was in the previous scrolling through on Facebook, and I saw him post like kind of like the introduction to the Rise Facebook group. And I was just like, man, this is so awesome. Like we we do, I'm not from Utah, but I've lived here for about four years and uh, groups like In Circle and Affirmation North Star, like these are pretty common groups. And most people in the church inside of Utah are aware of these spaces for the LGBTQ community. And uh, I forget sometimes that in Atlanta, and Atlanta is a super progressive city in the Southeast, which is not as progressive. And uh, kind of like Ian, he said, you know, like I figured there probably would be a group like this and there just isn't. And I remember uh, when I saw that the Rise group had started and he had told me that that they were going to start it up. But I remember when it started, I was just like, this is great. Like, this is something that should be everywhere, I think. But uh how did you get connected? Um, I don't know if I mentioned you served a mission in Brazil. And, yeah. And I assume you know Portuguese. I do. <laughs> it's a little rusty. But... And you know Alaskan. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so you come home from your mission. You're younger. You're 25 now and been married, I don't know, a couple of years, I assume. Yeah. How did you get connected at all with this issue? Was it through Ian or did you have just LGBTQ people in your life? Um. Yeah, I've... Uh, kind of like Ian mentioned, you know, like we're we're millennials, and and uh, you know, it's not it's not as taboo anymore to to be in the LGBTQ community. And I I knew gay people growing up. I I know trans people, um, and I, I think actually it was kind of like you mentioned earlier. It was one of your articles. Uh, my wife followed you on Twitter, and uh, she would always uh, she would always say, "Man, like there's this guy on Twitter, and he is like." <laughs> the most Christ-like person ever. And he always says stuff that's just very like progressive, but like very inclusive. And like, this is like what the church like needs, like needs more people like this. And uh, it was in January of last year, we we read kind of the article that Ian mentioned about uh, how you kind of had, I think you mentioned like you kind of had to like wipe your hard drive yeah. clean mm -hmm. of like everything you knew or thought you knew about the LGBTQ community. You just had to wipe it clean and, and go to the source and learn about it. And I remember when I, we read that article, I was like, man, like this is, this is incredible. And like, I want to be involved in this and I want to, um, mostly for me, it was kind of like, I recognize that like, I, I have a skewed perspective of this entire community and like, whatever I think I know is probably inaccurate, uh, because I hadn't done my part to reach out, to talk to people and ask them, you know, what's it like, like how like what's your journey what's your story and i think uh that that moment was kind of the turning point for us for all of us to kind of realize that we we need to kind of wake up 
and get involved in and learn people's stories. It's cool. And I'm, I'm glad that my Twitter feed is connected. <laughs> um, with I'm really old for Twitter, but I think that's part of Heavenly Father's plan for me to be able to connect on this issue. Absolutely. I think um, some may not feel called to walk into this space. And all three of us, you know, around the table here have felt different levels of calling to walk in this space. And um, I think if you feel impressed not to walk in this space, I would just say it's better than to not have opinions about people in this space. So some may not feel impressed to do what you've done with interviews and start rise mm. or do a podcast mm. or thought, talk thought thoughtfully about it, Gareth. But, and so I would say then it's probably best just to not have opinions. I don't know a lot about black teenagers. I haven't interviewed lots of black teenagers to know what it's like to be a black teenager in America. And so I think the principle there is that I probably should pass a lot of opinions on black teenagers. Um, right. And it's okay just say, I don't know, and I am not informed, and it's, I'm 58. It's easy for me to have opinions about everything because <laughs> um, I have a college degree and I'm sort of in this place in society where I'm supposed to kind of know everything. But So I would just invite any of our listeners that don't feel pressed to be in this space that's fine. It's not like everybody's calling, but then I think you just have to, you know, try to not claim to be an expert in the space. Right. I, I think that was one thing that we learned is like, you kind of realize that whatever you think, you know, like once you actually like talk to people, you're like, wow, I did not know anything at all. And I think you're totally right is yeah, if you, if you don't feel impressed, then, you know, maybe like reserve your opinion on it because I think that once you actually go and talk to people, like your entire world is like flipped upside down. And you're like, wow, I, I really didn't know what I thought I knew. And I'm glad that now I know. Yeah, I think a, I think a strong opinion and, and a weak education, it can be a very harmful combination. Well said. And, yeah. And so I think it's important to get the education first before you decide to have a strong opinion. <laughs> yeah. It can be very harmful. I really like that. And so then it's the trap of unearned opinions is a phrase. I don't know if I just mentioned that I'm getting old and can't remember if I just repeat myself. <laughs> I don't think you did. But the trap of unearned opinions, I think I, I just, that phrase really resonates with me and it's easy to have unearned opinions. You have now earned opinions because you've taken the time to learn from the very people you're forming opinions about. And I just think that's a doctrine of that Christ would be consistent with what Christ taught and who he is. Do you, I'd love to talk about your faith journey. Do you want to talk anything more about Rise? Uh, no, I think, um, I think we covered that pretty, pretty well. It's really cool what you're doing, and I love that you have LGBT people speaking. I love that panel. What a fascinating thing to do. And to, I have to think for LGBTQ people to be heard— in an informal church setting, no matter where they are, is incredibly healing to them. You talked about two things, listen and validate. So if I'm LGBTQ and I'm on a panel um, and people want to hear how I feel and my life experience and whether you do that individually in an interview or in a panel, I would just think there's a measure of healing there and a feeling of belonging and a feeling of connection that emotionally, if you could measure the emotional health of LGBTQ people after they have a chance to share their life in a trusted way, how helpful that is and healing that is. And it's a pastoral principle that 
we can use as church leaders and as friends just to hear someone's story, even if the reality of their life is different than our own. Yeah. Everybody just wants to have a place to belong and everybody wants to be understood. Mm -hmm. And I think that giving people the opportunity to just say, look, this is me. Like, like this is, this is who I am. And, and now you can know kind of like where I came from and where I am. I think at the end of the day is one of the most healing things is to just to know that, that people know you and that they know who you are and that they care about you and that they listen to you most important of all. Yeah. I, I think uh, we, we borrowed the Stephen Covey quote, uh, seek first to understand as on, on some of our, on our charter and, and whatnot and some of our meetings. And I, I think, uh, I think it's just, a, it's just a, a perfect concept to seek first to understand. And, and I think, I think there's so much healing that comes in authenticity giving someone the opportunity to be themselves and their, their whole self um, is can provide so much healing. Um, yeah. That can't be found in other ways. Tell our listeners about um, interaction with one of our allies, Steve Young, when he was in Atlanta. Yeah, <laughs> that was, that was pretty awesome. Um, <clears throat> I got a, uh, a text from Steve Young one day. Um, I think maybe you had given him uh, my number. And I woke up before work and it said, Hey, and this is Steve Young. <laughs> I thought, what is this? Am I awake? <laughs> I still... You probably thought Garrick was just playing. A yeah. Joke I thought on someone you. was just, someone was just messing with me. Um, and, uh, so uh, Steve Young is, uh, has been incredibly, um, he's been a, a strong advocate, uh, in, uh, in the LGBTQ LDS world. Um, and it's funny uh, just to give you a place of where, where I was, um, not far long ago, I remember as a as a high school and college student hearing that Steve Young was involved um, in this, and I remember thinking, "Whoa, you know, I would never, <laughs> I would never do that, right? That's that's a little too boundary pushing for me." Um, and uh, so things have really changed. But uh, Steve Young does Monday Night Football commentary, and we live in Atlanta. And I I went on the schedule, and I saw when he was going to be doing uh, when our Monday Night game was, and I asked if if he would be there and he said, yeah. And I said, well, could we meet with you and talk about this issue? And he said, of course he was so kind. Um, so we went to his hotel and me and Andrew and, uh, my wife, Caitlin and Jen Max sat in the lobby and talked to him. Well, really we just listened to him. <laughs> he, he just like, he's, he knew that he only had a, a limited amount of time and he just unloaded on us every helpful thing he could have possibly said. And it was just so awesome. Um, I, I just, what an incredible guy uh, he is. Um, and I I really didn't know anything about him besides his football career. Um, and he is just a remarkable human being. Yeah, and he believes really strongly that there's this unclaimed territory, I think is some of the vocabulary he uses, to be active LDS and support LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. That it's the fairness for all framework that the church has set up, that we want to be fair for all. And as long as we're not sort of critical of the church leaders or campaigning for doctrinal changes, um, which I'm not, I'm supportive of the leaders and, and not asking for doctrinal changes. There's all this unclaimed territory that you're claiming with rise, which is just to hear LGBTQ stories and, and fully and better minister to our LDS LGBTQ members. So he does provide wonderful framework and mentoring for all of us in this space. Yeah. He, he provides a precedent for people who are not ready to be trailblazers. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was me. 
Um, yeah, and so it's pretty thoughtful, and I he's just a great ally. Yeah, um, he's just remarkable. He really is. Talk about your own faith crisis. I know you sent me an article, and kind of I won't. We won't read this word for word. Yeah. We may link it in the podcast if you want to. <laughs> sure. Um, but talk about <clears throat> just your journey with your own faith. Yeah. So um, I, well. Rise really opened my mind to some feelings, some uh, some cognitive dissonance, and some emotional feelings in my heart that I had never really uh, dealt with before. How do I reconcile these types of things that sometimes seem like oil and water? Um, and I don't think that they are, but sometimes it feels that way. And uh, so, uh, in August of last year, I had uh, I had a, a pretty significant crisis of faith, and it wasn't like I want to be specific. It wasn't like I was uh, having maybe a doubt here or there, which is just human nature. We all have that. This was like, uh, this was like, you know, my ship sunk. <laughs> um, and it was, it was for me, it was sudden and shocking. It was, it was very quick and very uh, powerful. And, and it made me, it was like my, you know, I'm looking at my notes right here and um, on my notes about rise, I've got a little rainbow emoji. And on my notes about my faith crisis, I've got the emoji of the face where the head is a nuclear bomb going off. <laughs> that's <laughs> funny. That's what it felt like. Uh, it just felt like uh, uh, like my world kind of got turned upside down. Um, and it part of what made it so shocking is that it wasn't anything like what I thought it was going to be like. And I wasn't the type of person that I thought had faith crises. I thought people who have faith crises are, you know, lazy and, and sinful and, and offended. And, um, they, you know, they, they'd rather sin than be at church. And, um, as far as I can tell, being in church has never stopped me from sinning. <laughs> so I knew it wasn't that problem. Uh, and I don't really consider myself super lazy or, um, easily offended. And I wasn't any of those things. I, I was completely active in all checked all the boxes when this happened and, um, nevertheless it happened and, uh, and I sort of just got blown over by it. So uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe uh, good. some specific things you want to know. I don't know. You know, some categories of faith crisis are current issues. Um, LGBTQ role of women mm -hmm. would be two. Um, another category is historical issues. Mm -hmm. Would you categorize it as one or the other, a little bit of both or a completely different origin? Um, my personal experience in talking with people in my similar position has been uh, all of those things come into play at eventually. It's just what order um, and how impactful they are. Um, for me, it was predominantly historical issues uh, for me, but you know, for 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 others, it might be um, you know maybe they have a sibling um, who who just came out as gay. And they're not sure how to reconcile it, and it's just overwhelming for them. Or uh, maybe they're passionate about women's issues or um, issues involving, you know, people of color and whatnot. So there are there are social issues, and there are uh, you know historical issues, and um, sometimes it, sometimes it is uh, maybe they've experienced just a trauma at church, um, an emotional trauma, and and that could do it as well. Talk about these four books you recommend people reading. Yeah, so there's uh, there's a lot of books um, about faith crises. The ones um, well, the one that was most helpful for me um, was by a guy named Thomas Worthlin McConkie. It's called 
navigating a Mormon faith crisis, which is, I saw that title and I was like, that book is for me. <laughs> Well-named book. Yeah. Yeah. He, he got to it first, I guess. But, uh, uh, some other great ones that I know are popular. I've read some of them. I haven't read all of them. Um, planted by Patrick Mason is a wonderful one. I know that you uh, yeah. recommended that one on occasion. Um, the Givens, Terrell and Fiona, they, uh, are just incredible and their, their books are really great. Uh, Crucible of Doubt, uh, letter to a doubter. Um, what are some other ones they've written? The weep, the God who weeps. Yeah, I love that one too. All of those are beautiful. Um, there's a really popular one called letters to a young Mormon, um, that I know, uh, is helpful as well, just in how to deal with these types of things. Why was, is reading those books helpful? And would you recommend for people not in a faith crisis to read those books? That's a good question. Um, the book, the books were helpful for me because, um, I had never been in this position before and I didn't know anyone who was, um, at least not really well. Um, and I, and it's kind of lonely because you think here I am lost at sea and I don't see anybody else on the boat. <laughs> right. Um, and so the book, you know, for example, in, the in, uh, Thomas McConkie's book, he talks about how sometimes it can feel like, um, you know, maybe you've stepped off the edge of the map, um, but really, it's just time to get a bigger map. Um, I, I heard you um, talk about Big Tent Mormonism. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I had to expand my own tent just so that I could fit in it. It's interesting. Yeah. And that was new for me. Um, I had always anticipated I'd be expanding for other people, <laughs> not for myself. Um, do I recommend that people not in a faith crisis read these books? Um, yeah, I think so. I think... Uh, you know, the scriptures teach us that no man can be saved in ignorance. And, uh, and it's important to seek, seek you out of the best books. And these are some of the best I've read. It's important to just be informed. There's no, um, I can't hardly think of a reason to, a good reason to not be informed. Um, but these books provide uh, a very safe way um, to where if you would like to be informed, but still want to be um, still want to maintain certain beliefs or, 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 or whatnot, still want to maintain the way that you practice your faith, uh, you can, and here's how you can do it, right? So I think at least some of these books everyone should probably read. I remember talking to a stake president who was being released in about a year, and he had read the book Planted, in the, mm -hmm. and he ended up sending that book to many members of his stake that he felt like he may have he wish he had read that book at year one of being a stick president. Sure. And he just said, I have better tools now to understand. And I think in a way of just tender heartedness, he, he wrote, you know, he wrote in the book and sent it to many members of his stake. And I think what he was saying there is I kind of get you now better. Yeah. <laughs> I understand. And I have a better framework to minister to you. And so I agree with you Ian, that it's probably good as a local leader, as a parent, I think it gives better tools and better framework to minister to people in your family or in your stewardship responsibility so that then when they open up to you about questions, you have a better framework. Mm -hmm. um, talk about opening up um, to your wife, to priesthood leaders. So suddenly this dramatic, and some people I talk to in a faith crisis, it's a very gradual. Very incremental. And some it's sort of like the shelf crash, crashing. It's just... Boom. Yeah. Yeah. And you're kind of in the second camp and maybe your brother Gareth is nodding his hair 
nodding his head. Yeah, I was absolutely in the second camp. The shelf. The shelf. The shelf. Pretty. Um, Now, for other people, like uh, like my wife, for example, hers was very gradual, um, and and sort of a slow process. But, um, uh, well, what did you? It's just what did you talk to priests? Oh, that's right. Did you talk to your bishop or stick president or elders quorum president, release study president? I guess your release study president's not your priesthood leader, right? So you, but a trusted spot. (laughs) You have an interesting. It's an interesting experience because, on the one hand, you you're desperate to talk to somebody, just to get it out, Uh, but on the other hand, there is some concern that you talking to someone might make them have the experience too, and you don't want to do that. Because it's painful. It's a traumatic experience, and you don't, you know, you want to talk to people, but you don't necessarily want to send them through all that too. Um, so then it's kind of like, well, then who do I talk to? And and that's often why people will go to like online forums or, or or you know, people who have already been through this because they know it's it's safe. It's sort of a padded room for them. Um, so the first thing I did was I texted my best friend from my mission, <laughs> um, and I I said I think I'm having a faith crisis. And he was so great. He texted me back and he said, yeah, I've been in one for about a year. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the second thing I did was I emailed you. Yeah. Um, and cause I had heard you mention, and this is why it's so important to just talk about stuff because I had heard you mention that you had had sort of a mini faith yeah. crisis before. And I thought, okay, well he's used that word and he's applied it to himself. So I guess I can talk to him. So I emailed you. I was I, honored you did. Well, I was grateful that you re- replied cause I, Poor thing, you'd listen to me sob on the phone for I think an hour. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, and you just handled it so well. Um, sometimes I think about that phone conversation and I laugh because I was being so dramatic. But uh, but it was it was a very like turbulent experience. Uh, and, and I was afraid to tell my brother Gareth and my wife because I knew that they were both having their own issues with church, and I was worried that if I tell them like that'll be the nail in the coffin, right? And, and then I, the blood will be on my hands. Because you're the, kind of the strongest. <laughs> That's right. I, I think they saw me as like the most uh, orthodox maybe. Um, and uh, so anyways, I, I told them later in the week um, and they were just both incredible about it. Um, and, and it really brought us all, I think, closer because now there was this aspect of our lives that we were not sharing and now we're sharing and now we're talking. And now we're communicating authentically about it. Um, and there's just an inevitable bonding that happens when that when we talk and uh, when we discuss things openly and authentically. Did you talk to a bishop? I, I did. So my temple recommend actually expired the week my shelf broke. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, uh, what am I going to do about this? Because I wasn't sure that I could answer some of the questions. I think the moral of the story is get your temple recommend two weeks before. That's right. Go ahead and get that done in case your shelf breaks. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, I went to the temple later that week um, on a Friday, and just sort of pondered in the celestial room, what am I going to do about this? Um, and I met with my bishop two days later on that Sunday, and I just kind of told him everything. And this was the bishop I mentioned, who's been very active in Rise, um, and overall is just. Uh, a wonderful listener. Um, and I just kind of told him, I didn't tell him specifically what my issues were. I just told him how I was feeling, what was going on. And, um, and he just listened to me and, um, told me that he was sorry and, um, he could understand that I was feeling pain and, um, he's just incredible. There's a couple things in the interview, um, in my meeting with him that 
uh, that maybe he could have been better. Um, but just to give you an idea of his moral character, uh, he let me email him and tell him some things that maybe in the future um, he he could have said better. Did you ask? Did he ask you that, or did you volunteer that? Um, I think I, I think I mentioned to his wife <clears throat> that what my experience was meeting with him, and and she said, "Well, why don't you? You should have just told him. <laughs> you should. Why don't you just send us an email or something?" Um, and I sent an email, and and uh, my bishop said, "You know, I wish you would have just told me these things while we were meeting." And they were, and to be fair, they were all things that I would have done too, and and that's one of the interesting things. In this experience, you think back to all the things you've said before, uh, to all the things you've said to people, recommendations and very dismissive suggestions and uh, advice that was not helpful. And and now you see that it was hurtful. Um, Are you closer with this bishop because of this interaction? I, I think so. I don't know. I have to ask him. <laughs> but I think I am. I feel closer. To Do you him. feel like you can talk to him? And about how you feel and what's going on in your life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In fact, yeah, he and his wife had, have invited uh, my wife to dinner uh, multiple times to talk about this. Um, and, and he even told me, he's great. He said, you know, um, let's have dinner and, and I'll just be Dave. I won't be your bishop. Um, and let's just talk. And, uh, and he and his wife are just um, like cream of the crop as far as people go. Um, been very helpful. Yeah, I think we can all do that as friends and priesthood leaders, um, be able to keep people in our circle that may feel different. Um, and I like this interaction where I probably, as a bishop, if someone had opened up to me about faith, I probably would have given them some toolbox things to work to do, which would have been things that I thought would be helpful that sounds like some of those toolbox suggestions maybe were the things that you ended up emailing him about. Yeah. And, and these were all the things that I had suggested to people in the past too. And, and the only problem with this sometimes, um, for a lot of them, I was already doing them. Yeah. I was already reading my scriptures every day. I think I can count on my fingers the number of times I haven't read my scriptures since my mission. I was already, I was in for a temple recommend interview, so I was going to the temple. Um, so part of the part of the issues with some of those suggestions is that those are things that are already being done. Um, but the other problem is sometimes those things um, are the very things that are triggering or painful for a person. Maybe, um, maybe someone has, you know, it, it would be great if we lived in a world where everyone's temple experience was was like mine initially, where it was just a highly spiritual experience. Um, but for a lot of people, it's not. For some people, it's not a positive experience. And so recommending that they become a temple worker as a solution to their faith crises may not be the best suggestion, right? And uh, sometimes, I think that's just why it's so important to listen, because um, sometimes... Our temptation is to recommend the very thing that might be causing, um, that might be triggering or painful for that person. Yeah, I think it that kind of can fall in along the lines of this 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 idea that kind of permeates in the church that people who have faith crises faith crises are, uh, they're 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 like less active or the the only people who will struggle with their faith are people who aren't doing what they're already supposed to do and, and that idea is, is completely not true that. You can be the most active member in your ward, and for whatever reason, sometimes things just trigger you, and uh, and and it's not it's not always just as simple as well read scriptures and have faith and pray because a lot of times it doesn't help, and it and a lot of times actually can make people feel more alone. You know, I think 
Um, Gareth, I don't know if we've said this, but you've you know stepped away from the church, you and your wife. Yeah, we have. And what if I were your bishop? What, what is there? Anything, what what would's the very best thing I could do if I were talking with you? Um, and is there anything I could say that could bring you back? <laughs> um, I, I, right now, to be honest, no. Um, but I would say the best thing, and this is kind of like I feel like just having listened to both of you talk for for a while. This is like the theme of this podcast. I feel is there's just such great power in just listening to people and recognizing that like everybody has their own unique identity and unique life and unique experience and unique feelings and. And I think the most important thing as a, a priesthood leader or a bishop you can do for someone like this is just to listen to what they're going through and realize that you may not have the solution, but people kind of have to just go through things on their own and they have to, to, to have the, the, the liberty to, to process things on their own. And just knowing that they have someone that they can talk to, that they can just you know, unload and, and recognize that that person is listening and they don't have to agree. They don't have to even fully understand, but just knowing that, uh, that their ideas and thoughts are being validated, I think is a, is a really powerful tool. And it's probably one of the best things that anyone can give to anyone is just ha making someone feel validated and, and allowing someone to feel like you're okay for feeling this way. You're okay for having these thoughts. You are, you're not you're not sinful, you're not weak, uh, you're not confused or deceived. You just, you're just different. You're a different person. You have different feelings and different experiences. Would you and Nicole talk to your bishop if, if he would listen and just kind of without, and you felt like he were completely safe or would you feel like that's probably something we don't want to share at this point? Yeah. Um, for, for us, it was a little different. We, we weren't super active at the time we stepped away. Uh, our, our kind of transition out of the church was the the portion of actually stepping away happened really quick kind of uh, and for the listeners who who maybe not know this we would kind of refer to as the shelf breaking you know you you pile things onto it maybe doubts and thoughts and feelings and eventually gets too heavy and it breaks that that happened pretty quickly we had had experiences in our ward uh, in the previous ward that we had lived in that kind of turned us off um, to to going to church, um, one of the experiences we uh, we had just gotten married. We were in a family ward, and we really didn't feel like we had a place there because most people were either older or they had kids, and we were newlyweds. We didn't have kids, and we just didn't feel like we really belonged. We really wanted to go to like a married singles ward uh, or a married, not married, yeah, a married YSA ward. Right. <laughs> I don't know what you call it. I mean, we know what you mean. Yeah, a married student ward, something like that. Uh, and I think the only ones in the area were in BYU and you had to live in like this particular spot of Provo to go to these wards. And we wanted to go and we told our bishop that we just didn't feel like he belonged. And he was like, well, he was like, I, I think you just need to get your act together and come to church. And then he gave us a calling teaching primary. And that was super not helpful for us. Uh, and it kind of just made us feel like, well, I guess the problem is us. We're just weak. We're just not, we're not determined enough to go. And And from that experience was kind of a downhill path for us to just feeling like, more and more pushed away from the church and then eventually when we decided to leave we had moved to a different ward and we didn't really go because we just didn't feel like we really belonged there um so we we didn't talk to any priesthood leaders when we left uh mostly because we feel like they wouldn't have understood 
what's your relationship, you, Gareth, and Ian together? You've been, I sense, close brothers. Yeah, um, we've always been. And really you've close. earned a band together, and you both serve missions together, and now you're both kind of um, working on your faith, use an umbrella term. Has this caused tension between you? Has this brought you close together? It, uh, I think, early on, I think I initially was a little hesitant to talk to Ian about it because I, because Nicole and me, we, uh, we, uh, we were kind of transitioning out of the church before Ian even had a faith crisis. So I was very, I was very orthodox. Yeah. Very so, orthodox. and he was great with listening. Like I would unload on him with my feelings and thoughts and he was very good about just listening and saying, yeah, like I, I can understand why you, why you may feel that way. Um, I, we were a little hesitant to talk to him about it at first. Uh, when eventually we found out that they were also kind of going through the same thing, we just like clicked and we all four of us became super, super close because it just became this territory. That's, that's one of the, the scariest things I think about having a faith crisis or, or feeling just different in any ways. You always feel like you're alone. You're kind of like, well, what do I do now? Like there's not a, there's not a church faith crisis group sponsored by the church. You know, like you don't want to tell anybody about it because you don't want it to like spread around the war that this person's struggling and you don't, ironically enough, you don't always want like, you know, people knowing that you're going through a faith crisis and then everybody wanting to come visit you because it doesn't always help. And so, uh, it can be very isolating, but finding out that someone close to us was kind of going through the same thing. It just, it helped us bond really close. Cause we're like, you know, you're not alone. We're not alone. Like this can happen. It happens to lots of people and kind of, once again, the theme of the meeting, just feeling involved, just feeling like you, you have a place and you can belong somewhere and that people can understand you is just really, really powerful. Do you think Satan's deceived you, Garrett? <laughs> uh, no, I personally don't. Um, no, I don't. And I don't, and I think that is also kind of like, can be a harmful terminology used in the church is that if you're, if you're not on the straight and narrow, if you're having trouble, it's because Satan has, has entered into your heart or Satan has, has tricked you. And I just don't believe that's true. Yeah, I mean, I, what I know of you two men, I just feel, I used to use the vocabulary, wonderful spirit about you. Mm -hmm. And I sense your goodness and your commitment to your marriage and your commitment to do good in society. You offered a wonderful prayer, Ian, before we went live and and so, yeah, I wouldn't use that terminology to describe either of you. And that I believe Satan's really wants to destroy us, but I think I wouldn't apply that to really good people that step away from our church. I don't think it's helpful. No. And, yeah, there's a side of me that would love to see you, Gareth and Nicole, come back and, and you, Ian, be able to stay. And so I wouldn't want, I don't think that would be helpful. <laughs> I was talking to a some parents this week who have a daughter that stepped away and the dad talked about, I can't support her. And, um, and I thought, you know, I just gently nudged him that maybe he could support her and it might help their relationship and maybe even use vocabulary where, you know, you're an adult and I trust you to make the very best decisions you can for your life. And, and so you do have my support yeah. and, um, I've wondered if that would be helpful in their relationship. And then I wonder if she ever felt um, that she would um, consider coming back if that she would know her parents were a safe place for her because they've extended this support. 
um, and honoring their path. And if they felt at one point down the road that maybe this is something that we want to revisit as far as church, that they might turn to the people that extended the most support to be um, the very ones that they talked to first. Yeah, I think definitely uh, not supporting someone or, or cutting them off is not going to help them. <laughs> so I, I think you can nix that idea because it's absolutely uh, not going to make someone want to talk to you. It's not going to make someone want to come back to church if they feel like the people there are cutting them off. Um, and 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 also I, I feel strongly that that's not like that's not Christ-like, you know, like how can how can you feel like that's like the Christ-like thing to do is to to like not support your child when they're struggling, you know, I think no matter what, like you don't have to always understand, but I feel like you can absolutely still love someone and still say, I'm sorry that you're going through this. Uh, I'm sorry that this is hurting you. And, and I want you to know that no matter what, I'm here for you and I love you. And, and I feel like you do always have to let people make their own choices. And, and cause that's how we learn. Like we learn by making choices and if down the road we, learn okay well this wasn't the right thing for me but at least i'm glad i kind of went through that you know because i have the experience and now maybe i can help other people who go through similar things so i think a lot about <clears throat> men and women in your age that are in faith crisis or like you transitioning out of the church gareth and i thought of president nelson's visit to the prime minister of new zealand that occurred the week we're recording this podcast and She's a former Mormon, you know, former Latter-day Saint that I think LGBTQ was hard for her. So I think, you know, I, I could just say this is, you know, the sign of the last days and Satan's influence and increasing influence, drawing people off the straight and narrow. And I don't discount that, but I also want to be able to look inward and say, what do we need to do better as a church to keep our members in the church? Because, you know, I look at, that capable in particular, I think of the, of her and, you know, the wonderful job she's doing as prime minister and, and what it would be like if she were a faithful Latter-day Saint in that same role and the impact for good. And I look at you, Gareth, and you're just, you know, great man and your wife and Nicole and same with you, Ian and Caitlin. I think these are the very people we need to keep in the church if we're going to become the church that God wants us to be. So, Sometimes I think Satan's tool is to keep us from looking inward and say, what do we need to do better? Um, which would be a very dis insightful tactic. Um, and so, you know, that's why this discussion's helpful for me, just to wonder. So I wonder a lot about what I can do or what um, we can do in a church and your experience about that, Bishop, and, and maybe being more flexible perhaps on a boundary situation to meet your needs or being more open and exploring it or, or just listening, asking, or listen asking questions yeah. about why, why do you want to go to a married ward? Right. What's, what's going on? Tell me the whole story and sort of trying to really understand maybe the bottom of the iceberg feelings you were feeling there in a real critical time for you and how that could have been handled differently that maybe would have kept you. Right. Um, and so those are the things I think about a lot and it wants me to look inward and, you know, especially with LGBTQ and talking about our history. I know my son who's just graduating seminary has a seminary teacher just taught Joseph Smith's polygamy in a really wonderful way. My son just came back from seminary, just 
all jazzed because he just learned about <laughs> Joseph Smith's polygamy and right. the age of some of those brides. And he gave him a framework to manage that really complicated stuff. And I thought, well, some way my son's been inoculated a little bit because he's not going to get surprised later on. Sure. And, and maybe that keeps him as a faithful member of the church because he doesn't get surprised and he has a, and he's being taught that in the church. I don't know. You know, I'm not saying that either of you would be, your shells wouldn't have crashed if you had had some of this framework before your missions. But I wonder. Sure. Yeah, sure. I, I think, uh, I think some of that, as you put it, inoculation certainly eliminates some of the shock factor um, a little bit. I, I think one of the things that I have learned the most, especially from you, my talk from you, is there's a real fear, um, this is probably true for anybody, that that you're going to lose meaningful relationships. And I remember when I talked to you and you told me that um, that no matter what I decided to do, whether I stay in the church or leave the church or be somewhere in between that, that, that I would always have you as a friend. Yeah. Um, and, and I had no idea how healing that was going to be to hear that. Um, I remember on the phone when you said that I, I just lost it. <laughs> cool. um, um, but people, people are afraid sometimes that they're going to lose meaningful relationships and that's why they're afraid to tell their spouse or their parent or, um, cause they know that it might cause turmoil and they don't want that. And so I think um, just learning, like you guys were talking about earlier, just just uh, honoring the individuality of the path, um, and making sure that a person that a person knows that their value is determined by the fact that they're a human being and not by their status in the church, right? Um, their activity level or or whatnot. I, I love the 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 quote. I can't think of the, the wonderful girl who said it that you always post on social media about. Loving people yeah. because people deserve to be loved. Yeah, Harper Forsgren, if you're listening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Harper shout, Don Forsgren. Shout out to Harper. Um, yeah. I, More you want to share about your faith um, journey crisis, Ian? And just for our listeners to understand. Um, I just, I think it's important to um, understand that um, I didn't, I didn't ask for this, I guess. was That was something that was shocking to me when I had it. I was like, holy cow, I didn't want this. But here I am. It was For me, it was like waking up and finding that my arm was gone. And no amount of prayer and scripture study seemed to bring it back. Um, and so now I was just going to have to figure out how to navigate life um, in this new way. Um, and, and my experience is not everybody's experience. And so um, things that have been helpful for me are not helpful for others. And I just again, same with Rise. There, uh, there is just no limit to the value of listening to someone, um, educating yourself, um, exposing yourself, and hearing someone's story and, and honoring the individuality of their path, um, and know that, you know, it was it was weird because I felt like after this happened, I was more compassionate and more Christ-like, even though some of my beliefs. Uh, had changed and that was sort of counterintuitive for me, but I just felt like this is the most Christ-like I've ever felt um, in my life. Um, and that was not something I expected. Um, but um, just honoring someone's path, um, honoring their choices, um, and just listening to them and knowing that you can still love them and um, and be, have a meaningful relationship with them if you hadn't started Rise, would you have had a faith crisis? <laughs> That's a good question. I've asked myself that a lot. Um, 
I don't know. I think probably eventually, yes, because uh, Rise was not the cause of my faith crisis. Um, social issues like LGBTQ um, issues were becoming increasingly more important to me. Um, that was starting. That was certainly opening my mind to some things. Um, but the real like trigger for me was um, was historical issues, and I'm I'm curious enough, and I read enough that I probably would have come across these things eventually. Um, so I think probably I would have. It might have been a slower process. I think rise for me maybe primed the pump a little bit. Um, but 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 I don't know. Gareth mentioned in his story he mentioned feeling kind of turned off. And that's a really great thing that Patrick Mason addresses in his book about people who feel turned off and squeezed out. Yeah. Um, and it's different and some people feel both. Um, and so I, I think, uh, I don't know which one it was for me, but it was sort of leading up to that. Um, so I think rise had an influence, but I don't think rise was the cause. Yeah. Cause I would, if I'm a protective leader and I'm recognizing that LGBTQ can be complicated, I would naturally counsel my children, my ward members, not to connect with LGBTQ sure. as a, as sort of a preventative medicine from them potentially having a faith crisis. And mm -hmm. I guess there's logic in that, but I probably think there's also probably logic in I've got to get ahead of the curve if I have a priesthood responsibility or a parental responsibility to teach these topics to people I have stewardship responsibility um, because just to your point, they're eventually going to probably, especially for our millennials, come across the radar map and they're going to have to reconcile them. So if we're proactively talking about them, I think it's one of the Terrell Gibbons really teaches is talking about this and you do cause the disease. He sort of uses the analogy of a vaccination, the vaccination can cause the disease. I'm sure. Um, but you, I think, then are able to prevent more faith crises because, and that's, that's not, and I, but I don't want to infer that either of you are weak for having a faith crisis. And sure. if we just presented the information to you in a different way that you would not have, I don't want to sort of say you're, you know, sure. I want to be yeah. really careful there, but I do think a lot about because I, I love our church, and I believe in our church, and we are losing really good people. Um, we're not losing weak people. We're not losing people that can't keep the commandments. We're not losing people that aren't committed to the church, and both of you and your wives are examples of that. And we need men and women like you to help us become the church. And so that isn't, I'm not saying that in a manipulative way to try to get you to come back <laughs> as more of just a pragmatic reality of the situation. And so I think, what do we need to do differently? And that's why I like having these discussions. So yeah. I don't know what the answers to those are. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think kind of, I'm of the opinion that there is like, nothing wrong ultimately nothing wrong can happen from just talking to people and, and having conversations and listening understanding and i feel like the most christ-like thing that anyone could do is to kind of like ian mentioned with that quote is just loving people because they're people um without the condition of them coming to church or or not going to church or whatever and i think you know, you do kind of have to respect the individuality of people, uh, you know, talk to people and talk to them about issues. And if those things eventually 
kind of escort them out of the church, uh, then that's that's okay because they're their own person and they have their own views. But at the end of the day, I still feel like both people will come away more Christ-like because they will have listened and learned and ultimately like love that person more. Which is the name of your podcast. There we go. And I did not mean to do that. <laughs> I um I I think and and I see this in a lot of aspects of life, but sometimes like you were saying, when there's something when there's a risk of something happening, our our initial approach is to just avoid it at all costs instead of saying, Well, how can we navigate it when it does happen? Um, because it is gonna happen. Um and so um, I think if we don't start working on how do how do we navigate it, how do we how do we approach it when it does happen, um, then there's going to be a lot of people who who get there and, and think, oh boy, now what do I do, right? And they're kind of left to fend for themselves. And so I I think there's so much value in um, instead of avoiding the problem, go ahead and and figuring out how do we how do we address it and how do we navigate it. Talk about bridgelds.com. Um, you referenced that in your article yeah. um, you, about your own faith crisis. You might be better equipped to <laughs> discuss it than, than myself. Uh, so bridgelds.com is a, a resource website for um, uh, people ministering to those uh, in a faith crisis. Um, and it's uh, founded by your brother, David, right. who's also an equally as incredible Christ-like human being as you are. Um, um, but it's a great resource website and, and, and these are the types of things that we need. Uh, I should probably, we should probably reference listeners to the, the interview you did with him, um, about his experience in, uh, in reaching out to inactive people in his stake and just hearing stories about why people have left. Um, but resources are crucial. There has to be resources. You have a resource website for this podcast for LGBTQ issues and people, um, are going to come across this and then they're going to say, well, what do I do? And where do I go? And so um, for this topic, for Faith Crises, Bridge LDS is a place, I believe it's specifically for but, yeah. for uh, church leaders. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, and I've, you've done a great job of describing it, and I think it is especially for local church leaders mm-hmm. to have tools to minister to members when they walk in the office like you did with your bishop, Ian. Right, bless his heart. He and, did not know what was coming. And, <laughs> So I encourage all local leaders, Relief Society presidents, young men's, young women's, bishops, stake presidencies to go. It's everything we do here is not officially sponsored by the church, right? including my brother's site, but it's bridgelds.com. And he's a former mission president, stake president, who has really stepped into the space of trying to understand why good people are considering stepped away or have stepped away and what are the best pastoral um, Christ um, principles to minister and understand, and he's done a really good job of that. So I'm glad yeah, you referenced really that in your article. He really has. And he's also created a support group that I, for parents, active LDS parents that have children that have stepped away, that is um, very helpful because that group needs community to process what's going on, and as you know, that can be hard for parents. Mm-hmm. And they sometimes think, what did I do wrong? Or what family night lesson did I miss in 1967? Absolutely. And um, my brother didn't miss any family night lessons. You know, maybe they did. But the reason he has 
adult children that are stepped away are not because they weren't good parents that didn't teach the gospel, but they still mourn and wonder, and they need community of other parents to kind of walk this road and what do we do in these situations? So I think he's providing a very good resource there. So if there's any parents listening that have adult children that have stepped away, that's a good resource. You could find that a link from it, I think, from bridgelds.com to the Facebook group he's put together. Mm -hmm. Do either of you have any final comments you'd like to share? I don't know if we got through everything you wanted to share about Faith Crisis, Ian. Yeah, well, I, I will like to say just for, for anybody who's listening that's in a faith crisis or has just got in one um, and is sort of like ex feeling the earth move beneath them, you know, as someone said to me, um, I do have uh, three rules that were helpful for me. Um, and I don't know if this would be helpful for everyone, but it was very helpful for me um, just to navigate. One Rule number one was that there's no deadline. In the church, we're used to operating on deadlines because deadlines can be very helpful, right? I've got to be on a mission by this age and I get the priesthood at this age and I, you know, I become a loyal at this age and I got to get married and have kids by this age, right? We operate a lot on deadlines. Um, <clears throat> but for a faith crisis, deadlines really aren't helpful because um, it might be a week or it might be a year or it might be 10 years that you're figuring this out. Um, and so telling myself that there is no deadline to figure this out eliminated immediately the pressure of having to hurry up, right, and figure it out. I can go at my own pace, and that's perfectly acceptable. Love that. Yeah. Uh, rule number two um, was that you're allowed to change your mind at any time. I certainly, uh, I think I, I joked with you earlier that sometimes I feel uh, religious or uh, theologically fluid. <laughs> some funny. days I believe something, and some days I don't, and some days it comes back, um, and I don't seem to have any control over that. Really, it just kind of happens, um, and. And there can be sometimes a little bit of shame in changing your mind. You feel bad about it. Like, ah, you know, I'm, I can't, I just can't make up my mind. Um, but that's going to happen. And in a faith crisis, you are allowed to change your mind. And it might be permanent and it might reverse. And all of those things are fine. And you're going to be okay. Um, and, and rule number three is that you are allowed to say, I don't know, as a perfectly acceptable answer. There's a lot of, a lot of times where people will say, well, you at least still believe this, right? And and instantly you feel terrible because you might not, right? And, and maybe you feel relief if you do. You're like, oh, okay, well, at least I can tell them this. Um, but the truth is, you're sometimes you don't know what you believe. Sometimes you don't know how you feel. Um, sometimes you feel like the more you know, the less you know. <laughs> you really don't know anything. And so you are completely allowed to say, I don't know at any topic as a perfectly acceptable answer. Um, I don't know. It feels like more and more of my answers become, I don't know <laughs> after a while. Um, but yeah, those three rules were so helpful for me in just eliminating some of the, some of the excess unnecessary pressure and, um, and emotional turmoil that comes in a faith crisis anyways. And it, it's not helpful it's more difficult to navigate it when you've got all this extra worry and concern in your mind. And so these three rules help me kind of, kind of like amputate a little bit of that, like unnecessary um, pressure and concern. I like that. Would you go back to your traditional believing days? If I put a button here, um, I, a, I, I assume some days you would and some days you wouldn't. Yeah, that's a good question. When I, I used to ask that question to the people I interviewed, 
for Rise, if they would, if they could have a button to be straight, would they press it? Because I assume that they would, and I've never heard of, had it one person say yes to that question, um, because it makes them who they are. And um, this experience, some days I, some days I would go back to my traditional believing because that was a very happy time for me. Right. Um, but I know that during that time I was also less compassionate than I am now, and I was less empathetic. Um, I was less Christ-like. I was not as good of a listener. I didn't have any clue how to validate anything. Um, all these wonderful qualities. Um, I feel like this process of um, a faith crisis in many ways has purified my faith uh, and purified me as a, as opposed to destroying it. It's just made it's made me a, a better person that I wasn't beforehand. So if there was some way I could be that good person without having to go through the trauma of it, maybe it'd be more tempting. <laughs> uh, but I think the answer is no. I don't yeah. think I would change. Yeah, and I feel the same way. I mean, I talk about my faith crisis in the terms of a mini faith crisis, and I wouldn't go back. I look at it as falling upward or mm-hmm. a positive spot in my eternal progression and my journey. And I love this quote, the wounded healer, that I sometimes share. I feel wounded by the process, but I also feel like probably both of you do. You can just relate to a lot of people, and you're able to lead other people out of the desert because you know the nature of that desert. Yeah. I'm also thinking about some of the training um, on suicide. I remember some of the training I got on suicide was you could ask a question, could you hurt yourself? But then you could ask another question, are you suicidal? And do you have a plan? And tell me about your plan. And the principle of that training was trying to teach is that I, you are more likely to open up to somebody if they're going to ask the question, are you suicidal? Then are you going to hurt yourself? Mm-hmm. And if you ask, are you suicidal? Then they know that you're safe to go that far. They can handle that. And so one of the things I think about with our members that are in faith crisis, I, as your parent or priesthood leader, would want to create a circle beyond where you are so that you could fully open up. And part of that is not asking leading questions like, do you still believe in the Book of Mormon? At or least you, you still believe this, Yeah, that's right? a leading question yeah, right. that is not an open-ended, tell me where you are mm. question. So I would want to create a safety zone that's further out than you are so that you could feel safe opening up to me. Because then I think, you know, as some of these things you said here, I don't know, you're allowed to change my mind. I think you're more likely to share those feelings with someone that's got a circle beyond you mm-hmm. versus somebody that you have, that sort of, you might feel you need to dig your feet in and justify your position. You may not open up to them if you're less sure about your position down the road. Yeah. So it's just a, and it, and there's not a manipulation in there, but I would want, if you were a YSA in my ward, I guess you can't be YSAs because you're married, <laughs> I would want to have a relationship with you where you would know that I'm safe to talk about everything mm-hmm. and that I trust you enough to honor your path, but I'm also safe. And you might be the very first person you turn to if you said, maybe I can come back or maybe there is a place for me or maybe I've rethought this conclusion And you wouldn't have to save face with me because I've already created a space for you that you would know I'd never do that. And I'd say, I told you so, or Mm -hmm. you're finally seeing things the right way, or I always knew and shaming sort of comments versus just, 
I trust you and I want to be with you and I'll walk with you. And you sort of set the agenda on the road you want to walk on and, and, you know, sort of, and I might even ask you, what do you think you need to do? Instead of giving you a checklist of things, I might say, you know, I, I trust that you're close enough with the Heavenly Father that what do you think is working would, and instead of prescribing to work in the temple, I might let you, Ian or Gareth, come up with the things that would be helpful for you navigating this um, versus sort of being prescriptive. That, yeah, I letting uh, people describe their experience before you prescribe your solutions is yeah. uh, a great, great uh, thing because there are there are uh, yeah I, I honestly can't add to that letting people asking people what what do you think you need um, is very introspective um, and and frees them up to to kind of evaluate and say well what things might be helpful for me maybe maybe even things are a little out of the box maybe I need to kind of take a rest or a break or maybe I need to be released from my calling for a minute while I kind of regroup um, but that question gives people a chance to to better evaluate and to, and to help the whoever's ministering to them to help the leader. So, you know, I just honor where you both are and I'm, I count you as great friends. I don't feel a need to, you know, I just trust you that you're, you and your wives are doing the very best you can and moving forward in your life. And I'm honored to have both of you on the podcast and both of you to be friends. I, I do realize that some that are stepping away may come back Mm Mm-hmm. And I recognize that they may have unique abilities to understand how to help other people. And you, too, may or may not be. I mean, you haven't left, Ian, so I don't want to, you know. um, But I do recognize that some that um, leave and come back have a a unique ability to sort of help others. And so I think there will be some that are leaving now that do come back. Sure. And I don't know if that'll be either any of your path. And I'm not sort of secretly in the back of my mind try and manipulate that to be your path i just honor your choices and your feelings about the right things for you and if you so that's just kind of the way i frame that up yeah one thing gareth said to me in the beginning of this process he said to me uh you know we we all love the story of peter in the water um, when christ pulls him out but sometimes we don't give anybody the chance to be peter in the water um and and that's the truth. Uh, sometimes people just need an opportunity to sort through things without a timeline. Um, and who knows where they'll end up, but they'll probably end up a better person at the least. Yeah, and I, I think we're all the wounded healer. This is a quote I share a lot, and we're kind of going over time, so thanks for our listeners. But <laughs> It's a morning here, so I'm not rushed to go anywhere. But um, Henry Norwin writes, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded about the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. And I just like that. I think we've all felt some of the woundedness of our LGBTQ brothers as we've listened to those stories and just our own faith, you know, you know, journeys, and there's some pain there that we've all felt. Um, some of that's indirect pain, feeling the pain of our LGBTQ, but with faith, it's our own pain of just going through this and reconciling that. And I think those do bring Christ-like attributes in our lives that help us be better people. And I think both of you have talked about you feel better with, closer with Christ, and you feel your heart is in a better spot 
And in some ways, the Christ-like attributes from chapter six, I think, of Preach My Gospel, this process has refined all three of us in a way. We're not perfect, but to have more of those Christ-like attributes to be able to reach um, the ones that Christ, at, by example, reached in his ministry. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that in all of our lives. Uh, Gareth, any final thoughts? And then we'll turn it to Ian for any final thoughts, and then we're going to be done. Uh, I just want to say it was an honor to be here to talk about this. Um, this is a unique experience for me. Um, I think just final thoughts that I have to, to anyone going through a faith crisis um, I think the most important thing is to to understand that you're not alone. Like there are lots of people just like you. Uh, don't feel isolated, um, and to to love yourself. Like it's it's okay that like you're going through what you're going through. Like we're on the earth. We're we're mortal people, and we all have our own experiences. And and it's okay that you're going through this. Um, but there are lots of people just like you. Um, and so don't feel alone because it's very easy to feel isolated. Um, and to people who uh, maybe parents or priesthood leaders or people who are a friend to someone going through a faith crisis, the most important thing you can do is to just love them, love them and listen and, and recognize that you don't have control over their lives. But I think that no matter what happens, uh, the, the best thing that you can do is just be a friend and to love them. And, and they'll be very, very grateful for that. Thank you, Gareth. Ian? Uh, yeah, thank you for having us. I, I don't think I have anything to add to that. Um, unconditional love um, is irreplaceable. Uh, and it's essential for a happy life. And I, I think um, we're, we're going to lose a lot of happy days. Um, that Well, we're going to lose a lot of days that could have been filled with happiness. Um to, to maybe some hopelessness if we are constantly wishing that someone would be somewhere that they're not instead of just loving them where they're at right then because um, uh, there's just so much happiness to be had and so much love to be had. Uh, so yeah, there's no, there's no replacement for loving someone unconditionally. So thank you, Ian and Caitlin. Caitlin's been here by proxy if you're listening, Caitlin. <laughs> And Gareth and Nicole, Nicole's been here by proxy, the Koch brothers. We talked before we went live about your mom, you know, who's a convert to the church. And mm-hmm. we, if you're listening, you sure done a great job of raising wonderful kids. And, <laughs> and they, before we went live, just talked about you and how much they love you and, and both of their, their parents and the family around them. So an older brother and a sister, I think, an older brother who's active in the church. So if there's any family around the Koch brothers that are here, um, they've just talked about before we went live how much they love their family and how what a wonderful, supportive family. So thank you, our listeners, for listening to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. And those of you that rate podcasts, I understand that's a thing now. You could do that. <laughs> I think it helps drive more people to podcasts. So if you feel inclined to do that, we'd appreciate it. Thank you.